Sky Radio 76 proudly presents the 515 Show with your host, John Sarver. Who's at the 515 door today? You know, it's fairly amazing that folks were like, with this gentleman that we have coming up, matter of fact, time to give him a ringy-dingy, that he is an incredibly uh, historic figure in drag racing. One of the biggest guys you've ever seen. And matter of fact, if he comes that highly recommended from Chris Holbrook and he comes highly recommended from Brian Wolf, folks that have been on this show many, many times. And if you get a picture next to uh, Herb McCallum, you got to be somebody good. Dave Lyle, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Yourself? Dandy. God, we are so glad to have you here. The renowned. Matter of fact, it says Dave Lyle, renowned, my good man. It, you know, yeah, I guess back in the day. Wait, why back in the day? I mean, you're still Dave Lyle, aren't you? Still the same guy. Yeah, <laughs> still the same guy. Cool. All right. Phew. Um, you know, the, the wild thing was, you started drag racing at what year? Uh, actually, I started in 1957. Um, I was still a teenager and, uh, I was in a hot rod club called the, uh, Tappa Tickers. <laughs> and, uh, also in our hot rod club was, uh, was an association in Michigan, Michigan hot rod association. And then that was also a club called the bearing burners. And the member of that club was, uh, Connie Kalitta. So I grew up with Connie Kalitta and raced with him when we were kids. Wow. Did you beat him? <laughs> no, he ran in different class than I did. Oh. But we we were friends, especially when he got sponsored by Ford, why we became uh, closer and worked together, and he helped me a lot in the development of the Boss 429 engine. But wait a minute. I mean, if you were around in, did you say 57 you started? Yes, right, I did. Started right. in 1957. So you were, what, 13? <laughs> in 1957, I would have been uh, 18. God bless. I was born, born in 1939. But I mean, if you were part of the bearing burners, then. Oh, well, I was in. Connie was in the bearing burners. I was in the tap Oh, that's right. That's right. I was going to say, but I mean, you then got to. And you grew up in the uh, Detroit metropolitan area, correct? Right. I grew up in the city of East Detroit, which was a suburb, the first city north of uh, Detroit. Yeah, and now it's, what, East Point? East Point, yes. Yeah. I guess they figured that Detroit sullied the name up, so they had to, had to change it. <laughs> you know, funny thing is, Dave, then you saw racing begin in this era, didn't you? I mean, this oh, area. Yes. Yeah, we started racing on 8 Mile Road in Gratiot. <laughs> 8 Mile Road in Gratiot? Well, 8 Mile Road was uh, one of our drag ra- uh, dragways and Gratiot Avenue. From eight mile road to uh, about fourteen mile road. Wow! Uh, every every Friday and Saturday night was uh, Gratiot Avenue drags, and then uh, sometimes if we we end up on eight mile road, but the traffic at eight mile was so so heavy that it was hard to hard to have much of a run. Was eight mile road at that time? Was that four lanes then? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, it was I think three lanes going north and south. Right. With a wide, uh, you know, divider, wide uh, ber- uh, berm in the middle. Yeah, only because that we remembered that there was um, 
I think Motor City Speedway, not the dragway, but Speedway was on Baseline, and I'm doing yeah. the quotes for Baseline. Yeah, yeah. it was on 8 Mile Road in Senior. I spent, I misspent my youth before I started <laughs> drag racing at Motor City Speedway. <laughs> Matter of fact, I, I wanted to grow up to be a race car driver, but I, I lost my first girlfriend because of traveling with uh, the guys from Mark, which became ARCA later. Uh, I spent the summer of 1956 traveling on the Mark circuit, you know, r- racing a stock car. And uh, when I got at the end of the season, well, my girlfriend had picked up somebody else. So <laughs> I thought, well, i got to get a new girlfriend and a new hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Did you kind of look back, Dave, and go, um, hmm, <laughs> maybe I made a wrong choice here? Yeah, I did uh, many times. <laughs> <laughs> She was a nice, wholesome girl. Ever meet up with her afterward? No, I never did. No, I never did. But she was she was a typical 1950s high school girl, you know, with the uh, pleated dress and the, uh, uh, the bobby socks and all that kind of stuff. Very pretty girl and uh, very straight. Uh, her name was Sandy, Sandy Burgess. Great. So now here's the story. Sandy Burgess, if you're out there. <laughs> if you went to, I, I would assume East uh, East Detroit High School. No, actually, she went to. Uh, I don't know if it's Henry Ford because uh, she lived in uh, Detroit around the Southfield Eight Mile Road area, Southfield Seven Mile Road area. Yeah, and uh, I had to commute to go visit her. She was introduced me to uh, by a friend uh, that worked at the Campbell's Golf Station that I worked at. It was a friend, his girlfriend, you know, went on a blind date the first night, and then uh, we went together all that year until the end of my racing season. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what did you tell her? You said, gee, Sandy, I'm going on the circuit. Uh, Stay around for about a summer. Well, I tried to make it up to her every time I got home, but she would always tell me about all the boys that were asking her out while I was gone on the weekend. So, Wow. Well, Sandy, you hussy. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, didn't you ever like show her and say, it's like, look, you know what? You dumped me, but if you would have hang, hung on to me, you would have been with the renowned Dave Lyle. Yeah, that, that goes to show her. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you, Dave, I swear, if she calls in within the next couple of minutes here, we'll put her right on. Okay. <laughs> she saw it. Then you could say, good. Anyways, anyways. You know that that was wasn't that a dirt track though? That Motor City well, Speedway. Well, actually, was a was a high bank. Uh, it was clay, oiled clay, so it was very similar to asphalt. And it was pretty hard, you know, because it yeah. was like I say, clay. All of the east side from uh, Saint Clair, Lake Saint Clair eastward uh, for several miles was clay because it was at one time, you know, uh, back before the ice age, it was uh, part of the ocean. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> wow, then you really must have saw everything that was being built up there, especially like Eastland and, and I mean, Gratiot Avenue. What the hell car were you racing on Gratiot Avenue? Well, I started out, uh, my buddy worked at a dry cleaners, and uh, in 1955, he had bought a new Chevy uh, delivery van. Wow. But it had a V8 in it, and uh, because it was a van, it had a 456 rear end. So you can imagine how quick this thing was with the Chevy V8 and the 4, 456 we were in. So 
We used to, he used to let us drive it at night. We used to go drag racing up and down Gratiot Avenue with it. And then all my friends had cars. And uh, uh, one one friend had an old 98. The other friend had an old 88. And uh, um, my closest buddy, uh, Bill Large, had a uh, 48 Mercury with an Oldsmobile in it. We used to run that up and down Gratiot. Wow. And, uh, and, and the um, cops never saw you? The cops never knocked on your door oh, and yeah. said, oh. oh, yeah. I got a $75 ticket in 1955 or 6, which would be like a $750 ticket today. Seventy-five you know, uh, on the street. <laughs> $75 ticket? What the yeah. heck was that for? For drag racing on the street. I mean, it was 1975. I mean, sorry, 1955. Wow. Wow, I bet you your eyes popped out when you saw that. I was making about $40, $45 a week working in the gas station, so it was like wiped out half a month's wages. Well, here's the story. Did you win the race? As near as I can remember, I did. <laughs> I didn't lose very many. <laughs> you didn't lose that many driving the Chevrolet panel? No. Well, I, I think I did that driving... Uh, my dad's 55 Ford. My dad bought a new Ford 55, and uh, it wasn't the fair lane. didn't have dual exhaust on it. So right. while we're in the, in the showroom, you know, waiting for my mom to sign all the papers, I crawled underneath all the other new cars, and I saw that the fair lanes had dual exhaust. So while she was uh, getting her stuff ready, well, I went into the parts department, and I ordered the other side that uh, <laughs> our new car didn't have. <laughs> and I paid for it with my paper out and my gas station money. So the car was a week or 10 days old when the parts came in, and my dad let me put dual exhaust on it, and uh, the dual side I put on the Hollywood muffler. When he got used to that, when he got used to that, why, I slipped another Hollywood muffler back on the other side. (laughs) I guess my dad was young enough at heart that he never complained, and he, he let me do that. So when I would use the car on Saturday nights to go out racing, why everybody thought it was my car because you know a nice shiny new Ford with dual exhaust and Hollywood mufflers. Then my God, that thing, then, that thing would burn rubber. I was, oh, wow! I was going to say, then why would you be worried about Sandy? Hell, man, you got <laughs> a brand new '55. <laughs> I mean, well, I, she used to always throw up at me about college kids after you know, and I was just a high school guy what? at that time, so. It's hard to compete with older boys. I'm telling you, we're going to find this got woman. More money at fancier cars. Yeah, but <laughs> who's got a fancier car than a '55 with dual exhaust and a Hollywood muffler on it? Right. Yeah. Wow. It would burn rubber in every year. <clears throat> and your dad was cool with it. It's like here's a brand new car that we're making payments on. Here, son, tear it up. Well, he was cool with it. He was in a real estate business, so uh, often at times he would let me take the car at night. So one night I took the car up to the golf station I worked at at, at Campbell's Golf at Stevens and Gratiot and to change the oil. Anyway, when I left, I did a John Force burnout across the driveway <laughs> out on the Gratiot Avenue. Right about the time I got street, well, I hit second gear, got rubber. And then back in those days, what you do if you're beating somebody in a drag race on the street, yeah. you just keep tapping the clutch pedal, make the tires chirp. So I chirped the tires four or five times in second, got rubber in third gear, and just as I looked over, 
at Gratiot, right about where the church is at uh, Stevens in uh, or somewhere on Gratiot, was my dad walking up to get the car. Apparently, he got the call to show a house, and I did a nice show in front of him. <laughs> All my drag racing skills with his new car. So uh, I was grounded for about a month. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what did he think he, that you were going to do with this 55? Just go to the A&W? Well, he never wanted to set a bad example, but he did admit to me several times about some of the uh, uh, things that he did. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it was in the genes, really. <laughs> and your mom didn't care? Well, the only time my mom cared, uh, when we used to go out to dinner or something, Dad would always let me drive. And at one time, we were going down Stevens Drive, and there's a little old lady in front of us going real slow. So my dad said, pass her. So <laughs> I popped her up in second gear and roared by her. And my mom you know, got a little upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> was your mom hitting you with her purse? Slow down, slow down. No, she, she was giving me that look. You know, if you, you know oh. that look that mothers can give you. Ooh. Burn a hole right in the back of your head. Yeah. I mean, was that a nice dinner that day, or did you just want to go home? Well, it was a Friday night. We always used to go out to eat on Friday night. There was, uh, if you remember, growing up, anybody growing up on the east side, Shepherd's Inn at uh, Utica Road and M97 was a great place to get a steak. And we used to go there for steaks every Friday night. Wow. I mean, was there ever a time where your dad said, Look, son, it's 1957 now. Uh, the 55 is pretty well hacked. Do you want it? I'm going to buy a new car. Well, there is a story about that. Actually, uh, 1950, the spring, spring of 57, I guess it was the middle of the summer, my buddy Bill Large with the uh, Oldspowered uh, Mercury Convertible, yeah. uh, he, he wanted to go to Cordova, Illinois, for the World Series of Drag Racing. So I asked my dad if I could borrow the Ford to tow him there. Now you got to remember this. We're a one-car family, and my dad's in a real estate business, where he needs a car for work. But he yeah. went ahead. He was such a great dad that he let me borrow the car, and I towed Bill Large all the way out to Cordova. But on the way out, uh, I, I didn't trust anybody else to drive, and I'd worked all day uh, with Bill getting the car ready. So going through Chicago, uh, real early in the morning. Uh, I guess I got a little sleepy, and I uh, got in an accident. I hit a bus. <laughs> anyway, it basically totaled a 55, <sighs> but uh, I, the bus hit the front, and then uh, the Mercury swung around and hit the rear, right rear quarter panel. <sighs> anyway, we, so uh, we, we pulled a radiator out of it and got the radiator fixed, hammered the fenders uh, off the tires, and Went on to Cordova, Illinois, and <laughs> raced his uh, Mercury at the uh, World Series and came back home, and my dad took one look at it. He said, it's yours. And he gave it to me. <laughs> and he bought a new DeSoto station wagon. So it, that kind of is what happened. Wow. What I did with it, though, it was, like I say, it was total, but I took the body shell, which was still pretty straight except the right rear quarter panel, Yeah. and I, I, I went and bought a bunch of parts, and I actually built a 56 Ford because they had the same basic shell, and I put 56 uh, you know, sheet metal and uh, 56 grill and taillights in it, and I uh, went and got a 56 292 engine. I, uh, I had some friends at Dearborn Steel Tubing and got me the uh, NASCAR dual quad intake. Wow. 
which was a 230 horsepower Ford Y block. And uh, I raced that as my first race car at Motor City Dragway in 1957. And uh, raced it in A stock. We were run 16 flat at just about 90, 91 mile an hour. Matter of fact, that's how I met uh, the Bob Ford crew, which I got hooked up with later. Man. Uh, one of my friends uh, at, at Motor City Dragway, back then it was called New Baltimore. No, it was called uh, Michigan International Dragway. That's right, because it was owned by the Michigan High Rod Association. Um, so I'm out at Motor City Dragway or Michigan International at a race in my Ford, and here's a, a, a brand-new 58 Ford layered up with shoe polish, see Jack Gray at Bob Ford. Well, of course, one Ford guy to another, we struck up a conversation, and he was a salesman at Bob Ford in Dearborn, and that's what he did for a hobby. He drag raced, and that was his demonstrator. So every year he would buy the, he would order the lightest body with the biggest engine and then drag race it and letter it all up, you know, with his, uh, and pass out business cards, and he sold a lot of cars that way. So we became pretty good friends, and pretty soon uh, I would help him because he would just come with his wife and his kids. He didn't have any crew people there. Right. And uh, I would bring my wife and my kids, and we would, uh, you know, kind of picnic and uh, and uh, swap stories and help each other. So anyway, uh, when my wife got pregnant for the second child, he said to me, you know, having a race car isn't really a good family car. He said, uh, why don't you sell that and uh, just come to work for me as my crew guy, you know. And uh, so I did that, and I sold my uh, my 56 Ford. By then, it's 1959, and uh, I just started working uh, on the Bob Ford cars. I would either drive to the west side at uh, Bob Ford and bring it home with me, or I'd go there on a Saturday morning because yeah. the dealership was open Saturday, you know and uh, work on it in the service department. And if it was anything I couldn't do on Saturday, why I would I would swap cars with Jack. Uh, I bought a regular Ford streetcar, and I would bring the race car back to Campbell's Golf Station in East Detroit and work on it. And then uh, whenever I was done with it, I'd bring it back and swap cars back. I did that all the way up to 1960. And then uh, by that time, the, another uh, salesman of Bob Ford by the name of C.W. Massengill also uh, wanted to do the same thing. He started racing his demonstrator. Well, he had me prep it for him. And then uh, Detroit Dragway was running uh, three nights a week. I think it was on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, so I would go over to Bob Ford, pick up CW's car, and uh, take it to the drag strip and race it in A-Stock. CW's car in 1961 was a single four-barrel, high-performance 390. Wow. Ran an A stock, and then Jack Gray's had the 401 horsepower, 390. We raced that in Superstock. Well, we got uh, we got Jack had enough connections at Ford that we got Ford to uh, spend some money on this, and they had uh, the car sent down. They sent Jack's car down to Holman Moody to blueprint the 390 engine, and uh, they kept it most of the summer. <laughs> anyway, when we finally got it back, why? Uh, it needed some chassis work, so uh, by that time, I had one A-stock with CW's car 17 weeks in a row. And uh, so Jack said, you know, do your do your thing on, on the Superstock car. So it was getting near the end of the season, and uh, <clears throat> there was a big uh, Superstock meet up at Stanton, Michigan. Uh, 
Central Michigan Dragway. I think they call yeah. it at the time the Central uh, uh, Tri-State Championships or something like that. This was late in the season, 1961. So uh, we drove this four-barrel car, the A-stock car of CWs up there, and we I towed the 61-4-1 horsepower uh, on a you know, flat tow bar. And uh, anyway, make a long story short, we qualified top in both classes, and I think overall we were like one and eight. Uh, make a long story short, we went on to win the race. We beat Troy Rutman's car, driven by his brother, Joe Rutman, who later became famous as an NASCAR driver. He was yeah. driving the 409 Chevy, and uh, I beat him in the final. And he protested me because it, uh, it had rained the night before, <laughs> and the pits at Central Michigan were dirt you know grass yeah so a lot of a lot of dirt had gotten tracked up in the staging lanes and on the track so the traction was was not the best well jack gray uh was a very resourceful kind of a guy always a thinker uh the rule book said you could have one spare tire and one jack so he got a big truck tire and a floor jack and put it in the trunk <laughs> for traction <laughs> <laughs> and of course rutman, rutman protested us so uh he said, uh, well, let's look at Troy's trunk and see what he's got in. Well, he's got a spare tire. It took three guys to lift it up. <laughs> you know, so the official says, well, let's rerun it. You know, we'll empty the trunks out and we'll rerun the last run. Yeah. So back in those days, uh, it was, uh, you couldn't leave the starting line full throttle. You had to, what my technique was to hold the RPM static, I think around 2,500, sidestep the clutch. That would make the car rotate on its axis, you know, and plant the tire. And then you would start crawling into the throttle with what you feel it could take, you know, by the seat of your pants, what we used to call the assometer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> by uh, 15, 20 feet out of the hole, I, I, I felt I could give it all and go wide open throttle. Yeah. And then, uh, anyway, so I beat him more in the last run, the rerun, than I did the previous run. And they awarded us the uh, win. I have posted that picture many times on uh, Facebook, you know, about winning that race. Yeah, but and, uh, but still, when they opened up that trunk and saw that trunk tire, trunk <laughs> yeah. tire and a floor jack. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> god! But you, you know what? They said that. Go ahead, that's Dave. not in the spirit of the rules, boys. <laughs> yeah, but it's in the spirit of winning that check. Thanks. That's right. You know what, that's Dave? Right. You must say if you were up. Well, first of all, we have, for folks who are writing in for uh, questions for Dave Lyle, of course, you could write in at hotline, H-O-T-L-I-N-E, at C-K-I-W-7-6.com. Now, here's one. How long did you work at the at the Gulf Station? I worked at the Gulf Station until 1959. Uh, I worked there part-time when I was a kid going to high school, and then uh, I worked there full-time until 1959. Uh, one of our customers uh, was a young fellow about my age, and he had a new Pontiac Bonneville convertible. So yeah. I asked him, you know, how, do, how does a guy like you get to afford that? He says, well, I'm a tool and die maker. So he told me all about it over a period of a couple of weeks, and he finally says, I'll get you an application at the tool and die shop. So I, sure enough, he got me hired at the tool and die shop as an apprentice. And wow. I thought I was well on my way. But uh Later on, the uh, tool and die shop got unionized, and the first thing the union did say, too many apprentices, not enough journeymen, and I got laid off. 
Well, the gas station had already replaced me, you know, as a full-time uh, mechanic. And uh, and also they had the police towing and the AAA contract. So it was a full-service gas station, typical small town of the 50s. You know, we did everything, major engine repairs, uh, uh, towing. Uh, I used to go on record calls as a 16-year-old kid. Back before they had the jaws of life, we used to have to use the wreckers to tow the, to, cre- to rip the cars apart to get people out when they're trapped in the car. And you were the first yeah. one to get to them. Yeah, I, I saw some things that gave you nightmares. Oh well, let's talk about something else then. I mean, because yeah, right, yeah. I, I think the I sp- want to go back to think about those things. The spirit of the anyway, question was uh, that they must have had a couple of mechanic bays in there for you to work on your cars while the owner oh, yeah. was uh, not watching. Well, actually, when I was 13 years old, uh, I had a paper out, and uh, we used to go to Motor City Speedway, and one night they would race motorcycles, one night they would race roadsters, and then one night they would race what they call hardtops, which are the coupes, you know. Yeah. Most of them were pre-war Fords with flatheads in them. Anyway, the roadsters were what got my imagination because they allowed any engine modification, and they had, uh, you know, the flatheads in them with the uh, Edelbrock cylinder heads and the double, triple carburetors and all that stuff. And basically what they were were 27 T-bodies with a, kind of a, a fabricated what looked like an IndyCar nose. Right. And uh, and w- one of my local heroes was Iggy, Iggy, if I could say it right, Iggy Katona, I-G-G-Y, Iggy Katona, uh, was a winning the classes on that and uh so anyway i i wanted to build a car to copy his roadster and one of my neighbors was an electrician who had conduit tubing and a bender so i got the idea i'll have uh, my electrician bend up some tubing and i'll take it up to campbell's and let the old scotchman uh, grant campbell build it together for me well, the flat rate then was $5 an hour, so I would pay Grant. Every Saturday, I would set aside 5 bucks, and I would buy an hour of his time, and he'd do an hour's worth of welding, and I'd give him my 5 bucks. <laughs> of course, his, his hour was always an hour and 15 minutes, and I would get the extra goggles and watch him, you know. Right. So after about the, after about the second or third Saturday, he says, anything else I can do for you? I says, yeah, Grant, can I borrow the torch? <laughs> he gave me a long, hard look. He says, do you think you can light it? I said, I think so. I've been watching you. So he said, show me. So I set the oxygen, set the acetylene, you know, and yeah, man. the striker, lit the torch, and set the flame. He just says, don't burn yourself. And he turned around and walked away. <laughs> wow. Well, first so, of all, it, that's a tricky thing for a young kid to, to understand the oxygen, how much oxygen, how much acetylene, because things can get a yeah. little weird if you didn't you hit it just right. Wow. Well, it was a quick study. I watched them very carefully, everything they did, you know. And if I saw it once or twice, then I said to myself, I can do that. Wow. I just got to watch how to do it. But anyway, make a long story sure. short, they gave me the run of the place, you know, as just a kid. Uh, I can't imagine a businessman of this day and age, you know, letting a kid have the run of your business, especially if it was uh, open pits, if you remember, back to the gas station we're back in those days. Yeah. And they, they had all the tools. They had arc welders, uh, you know, settling torches, uh, uh, jackhammers, uh, impact wrenches, and everything else. And he just let me have the run of the place, just make sure I put the tools back, learn where they go. And uh, Wow. But anyway, go ahead. that gave me the inspiration. All the rest of my life, I would try to mentor young men. 
that I would find, you know, uh, bright young men because of the, what, what the old Scotsman did for me, you know, mentoring me and getting me started. And, and uh, so I, I kind of dedicated the rest of my life to doing the same for other bright young men that I met along the way. One of them was Steve Griebeck. Wow. You want to explain to the folks in Sweden who are listening right now who Steve Griebeck is? Yeah, I was uh, laid off. I eventually went to work for Ford Motor Company. I worked my way up from the dealers to Ford Motor Company. And anyway, 19, uh, 1980, I got laid off. And uh, I was then 40 years old. Nobody would give me a job. Extra, uh, laid off Ford employee. Nobody would hire you because uh, they know that I'd get called back and I would accept it. My brother-in-law was Carl Holbrook, Captain Cobra's yet. Well, Carl had a shop, so I had called on him to see if he'd hire me. And he said, I won't hire you, but he said, I, I have a corner of my shop I'm not using. He said, I know you're a metal fabricator. If you bring your stuff up here, you can use a corner of my shop, uh, set up your fabricating business, and uh, run it through my company. You can have half the labor and give me half for the rent and the equipment and electricity. And, uh, uh, you know, have at it. So uh, that's how I met Carl Holbrook and got hooked up with the Holbrook clan. Uh, Chris Holbrook is my nephew. Um, wow, you must have had some serious <laughs> Christmas parties. Oh, yeah. We've had some Christmas parties that uh, <clears throat> we've had more fun than the law. Of the law <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we have to talk to Chris about that. I mean, did everybody park their hot rods in the, in the uh, driveway and say, yeah. you know, start yeah. talking shop? Well, you have to get Chris permission because he's warned me the secret. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. You know, we we got Chris coming back on again. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I will. I will give you a little clue. I ruined several pairs of pants playing with Chris, <laughs> where I ripped holes in them. This being drug along the floor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wow. By wow. a golf cart. <laughs> Good Lord. You, you know, Dave, you know, and again, we're getting uh, questions, and you can keep come, bringing them for uh, Dave Lyle on Hotline oh, yeah. at CKIWR Radio 76. When you started on Grashit, you must have had, like, the Shadowwood guys that were out there. There was a ton of, of talent that was running Grashit in that year, wasn't there? Yes. Well, uh, the Shadowwood uh, guys came later. I left East Detroit in uh, nineteen. Let me think now, nineteen sixty-five. Okay. And I moved to the West Side to be closer to my Ford job, and I moved to Lincoln Park. So the Shadowwood guys came later. I met them through my sponsor, who was from East Detroit, Custom Speed Enterprise, which was a hot rod shop in East Detroit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they knew all the local racers, and I met them. Because I spent time up at Custom Speed, I would bring my race car up and put it on display, or my race cars when I had more than one, and uh, you know I would sign autographs and so forth at Custom Speed shop. So I, I got to meet a lot of the East Side guys that were the generation behind me. I yep. should finish my story about sure. Steve Griebeck. Go right ahead. Uh, so I'm at Holbrook's in 1980. Uh, this fellow came in who was a friend of Carl's, uh, Grant Griebeck, Steve's dad, with this teenage kid in tow and introduced me to him. And uh, he said he likes cars. Uh, so they asked Carl if he would hire him. And Carl said, I'll hire him if you'll take him under your wing, you know, in your fab shop. Sure. So I did that. And uh, I agreed to do a high school co-op for Steve. So 
Steve was one of those guys that had a mind like a sponge. He would uh, all, all have to see it do it once, and he would instantly pick it up. And uh, Wow. Uh, so he, he just took off. And then later, uh, I went to work for Roush. I quit Ford and went to work for Jack Roush, who was a racing buddy of mine back in the 60s. I went to work for Jack in 1984, uh, first as the uh, GM building manager and then later as the operations manager. And I finished my career at Roush as a sales manager. But anyway, as the operations manager, I brought Steve in as a fabricator. And uh, Steve and Jack uh, got to know each other. And, of course, uh, eventually Steve went to work right for Jack as uh, in charge of the special vehicles department. And uh, by that time, my Steve's skills had passed mine in the fabrication department. Passed yours? Yes. I was, you know, not really... Uh, I was a fabricator because I needed to be, because back in my day, <laughs> if you wanted to race, you couldn't buy the kind of stuff that they make today. Your resources were the hardware store, the junkyard, or the car dealer, yeah. or the auto part. You know, I mean, anything else that wasn't in the parts catalog, you had to make I mean, or uh, rework. For- and so that's, so I, being a, uh, growing up to be a fabricator and a mechanic and an electrician and a welder and all those things. I could build my own race cars and build my own race engines. And that was the key to me getting started. And uh, a lot of the old guys, my generation, like Don Nicholson and you know, were that were the same way they could do it all. Wow. I mean, was there your favorite, you know, uh, junkyard around here? I mean, did you do M 57? I mean, was it 97 your... auto parts is where F-97? I got my 292 when I built my 56 Ford. <laughs> wow. Was that back in the day when you said you have one of those and they just point <laughs> somewhere back yeah. there? Yeah. Go, go take it out yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but what you do take you and your friends and go out there and whoever was the strongest back lift. Actually, you bring some tools. And if you needed something lift, they would bring a wrecker or they had a truck with a crane on the back and they would come and lift it out for you. Wow. I mean, how was the tr- the scene in Gratiot that early? Because everybody knows Woodward. And everybody, you know, yeah. Gratiot, there was, for those folks who are listening to us around the world, in the Motor City, there was three big drag strips, I mean, on street. And that was, I mean, it wasn't drag strip, it was sudden accelerational purposes only. Um, it was right. Woodward, Telegraph, Gratiot, Gratiot being east side, Woodward being uh-huh. right in the middle, Telegraph being somewhere yeah. on the on the right. west side. But Gratiot was right. more of a Mopari kind of side, and there you are with a Ford. Right. I mean, uh, also the Chevys were pretty big in East Detroit because of the GM Tech Center. Several of my friends, uh, like Neil Papielis, works at GM Tech Center, uh, and you know, even though he had a Chevy, because he was basically a racer, and I always recognized talent. Uh, I was uh, pretty brand conscious, but I was more—I was more of a people person. You know, I, I would recognize a person's skills and talent, and uh, judge him for that. So, I knew Pappy Ellis and a lot of the other guys that race uh, Mopars and, and Chevys, even though I was a Ford guy. Yeah, but I mean, you were saying that you were racing on Grasha between eight mile and fourteen. I mean, there's an inconvenient uh, Roseville Police Department there. There's an inconvenient yeah. East Detroit <laughs> Police well, Department. Gratiot that I liked to have back in those days, there was only a, tra- a traffic light uh, every half mile. 
you know, at yeah. the mile roads and the half mile roads like Stevens and, and Fraser, there was uh, no other traffic lights. So you'd get a good half, you'd get a good, you know, quarter mile run where you'd run into traffic again. If you, uh, we would time the lights. If you'd get a guy, you'd challenge a guy and you saw that he was going to go with you. Yeah. You would time the lights so you had to stop side by side and you'd uh, make some head signals back and forth or roll down the windows and converse, have a conversation and talk about how we're going to do this. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, <laughs> like in later years, when the cars got so powerful, we couldn't do a uh, dead stop because they would just smoke the tires. We had to do a roll. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, my 56 Ford, that's an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, I, by... I'm still using it in 1957, 1958, and a lot of the Chevys, you know, had to force be synchronized first. So they'd want to get me on a roll. Well, I only had the three-speed on the tree, so I had to learn to synchronize where I could pull it back in first gear while I was rolling. I would, uh, I had to memorize the speed and the RPM. I had to put the engine to be able to do that because they would want to get me up about 15, 20 mile an hour, and they would downshift to first gear with their synchronized four-speed, yeah. thinking I couldn't get in first gear. So I fooled them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would hook it in first gear, and when they say go, well, I was ready for them. <laughs> wow, so you're trying to take people on a 20 roll? So the ca- I can't believe, I mean, you do what, Saturday night, Friday night? Friday night and Saturday night. <clears throat> and no cops were hip to what you guys were doing? Except for that seventy-five dollar well, guy. <laughs> well, uh, the, there was police out there, but you know there was maybe uh, East Detroit maybe had two police because East Detroit is only two miles square. Yeah, it's eight mile to ten mile, and uh, Kelly Road to Beaconsfield, I think. So uh, <clears throat> they only had maybe a eight, six or eight man police department. So uh, like on at the evening, there might have only been two guys on duty or three, maybe one at the desk and two patrolling. So all you had to do was just look, you know, look behind you, look for the jelly bean. If you couldn't see the jelly bean <laughs> on top of the car in the row behind you or in front of you, everyone was around you. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're pretty safe. But like I say, that one time they did get me. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the, Dave, when that's you... The risk you took. When you were on Gratiot, I mean, when you were raising Gratiot, because it was a phenomenal scene back in the 60s, late 50s. You know, was there oh, one yeah. one car that you just loved picking on? Well, uh, being a Ford guy, I loved to pick on Chevys. There you go. Uh, a couple of my buddies at GM Tech had Chevys I, I couldn't quite handle, but for most of them, most of the guys that just had power packs, I could handle. Uh, I could handle, you know, up to a 225 horsepower Chevy because my 292 with a NASCAR uh, dual quads on it was rated at 230 horse. Of course, I had a, a four. I had a station wagon rear end in it, 444 rear end in it. Uh, and I also had a Cadillac, a Cadillac LaSalle transmission because I could bust a Ford transmission pretty easy. So I ended up going to a Cadillac LaSalle transmission. And you fabricated uh, this all yourself. I had to fabricate the linkage. I had some help making the adapter plate. Wow. I uh, struck up. I struck up with a machine shop on M97, and I drew up what I wanted. And I took aluminum plate out there and described to the guy what I was trying to do. And uh, like the old man Campbell, the guy was struck with my interest, you know, with my uh, enthusiasm, and he helped me. And at the end of the day, he made this adapter, and I think he charged me like 
ten dollars. You know, wow. he probably had he probably had three or four hours of machinist time that <laughs> just because he, you know, he 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 saw the glit in my eye and the fire in my belly, and he wanted to help me. Yeah, I mean, was there <clears throat> was there any one car on grass shit that you would always be looking for? One that you go, you know, you might not be able to beat them or something, but it's like doggone it, today's your day. <laughs> I didn't really go looking for cars until later on in the Bob Ford years. You know, uh, we would go on on Woodward just to cruise, just be, to be part of the scene. Yeah. I didn't drag race on Telegraph until the '60s, and then I would, uh, like, if we got rained out at Dragway, I would, and I'd have the race car, you know, towed up behind me. I would go over to Woodward, and maybe if it stopped raining, I'd unhook it. <laughs> And drive it up and down Woodward to see if I get anybody to take me on. <laughs> so I, I did have a couple of real serious drag races one night in 1960 with our 60 Starliner. Yeah. Like I say, I had friends at Dearborn Steel Tubing, which was the uh, made all the uh, multiple carburetor kits for Ford all through the years. And in 1960, uh, we had gotten a hold of a, a prototype tri carb setup. And this was uh, probably about June of 1960. So right. one night I, I had it in the trunk of the car, uh, 60. I had it at Campbell's Golf Station. So my younger brother and I swapped it out. We put the tricarb setup on the 60 and uh, went down to the. I, I had started about five o'clock, and my brother and I didn't have dinner, so we went down to a drive-in on M97 near uh, Eight Mile Road to. Uh, have something to eat, and uh, no sooner did we pull in the driving with a lettered-up 60 star liner with Bob Ford all over the side, and my buddy Ted Henke, who was uh, at that time driving the Packer Pontiac car, came in with one of his buddies, and he walked up to me and threw down the ET slip 1385 for Ooh. his buddy's 60 Chevy. He just come back from Detroit Dragway, so he says, I bet you that Ford out there can't touch this. Well, I didn't tell him. I just put triple carbs on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't about to tell him either. No, okay. I wasn't about to tell him. So <clears throat> I said, uh, I think I can. So I said, let me finish my hot dog here, and we'll, we'll get after it. So sure enough, we started down M97, and uh, in a little short period of time, that we before we run into traffic, I couldn't show my stuff, but I could run even with them. And uh, so that got him. That got his interest. So anyway, we went all the way up to 16 Mile Road, which is going north, which is uh, sure. Metropolitan Parkway. So we turned east, went east on Metropolitan Beach Parkway. And at that time, back in 1960, that was hardly no traffic at all. It was, And then it was only two lanes. It was one lane in each direction, but two lanes asphalt. Yeah. So we stopped. My little brother counted out one, two, three, and we took off. And sure enough, at a hundred, about 110 mile an hour, I had a car length on him. So he stopped. He's, I can't believe that. So he opened the hood and took his fan belt <laughs> off. <laughs> he did it again. And, uh, this time I only had a half a car on him at 110. So he said, let's go on up farther. Well, our 60 star lander had a 486 gear in the back. Wow. And, uh, but we had overdrive, you know, three speed on a tree with overdrive. So, I, what I had to do is uh, let off on it, let it get in overdrive, and then crowd the throttle enough to go full throttle, but not kick that detent so it would go back, you know, in direct drive, stay in overdrive. 
anyway, we we ran until the speedometer was completely out of sight, and uh, I still had uh, I still had him. So he finally quit, and he said, "Well, we're turn around and head back." And he said, "We'll try it one more time." And just as we're getting ready to count, I could hear the siren in the Oops. distance, and you could see the flashing blue light coming from the east. So we took off <laughs> and turned down Shaner, you know, and, and, uh, and didn't race anymore. But I'm pretty sure, you know, that I beat a Chevy that had just run 13s. Wow. Anyway, we took the Starlander out to Detroit Drag with that Saturday night, and uh, the intake manifold, of course, had the Ford casting on it, you know, the Ford emblem. Yeah. Had a four part number, and I convinced Gil Cohn that it was stock parts. It was just uh, early release. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it looked it was production. It was just yep. production. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He let me run it. Yeah. <laughs> until eliminations, and then somebody had called and it said, you know, that it wasn't it wasn't released yet. So oh, he he he, he disqualified me, but. I was all set to have a nice night at Dragway. Wow. Which we didn't we didn't have until nineteen sixty one then. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, if you were racing through all that time, you saw in this area, and especially in Michigan, man, drag strips come and go. I mean you saw oh, yeah. you know, fifty you saw a Motor City dragway probably being built. You know? I I I helped build it, matter of fact. As part of the Michigan Highway Association, we used to go out there every Saturday and Sunday and work on it to build it. And uh, we had special assessments. We used to have car shows to raise money to hire the contractor to come and pave it. Wow. Do you remember how much it cost? No, but it was it was a, like a fortune back in those days. Well, hell I, bought my, I bought my first new house in 1959. It was uh, $15,000. Wow. I'm sorry, $13,000. And uh, paving, I think, was more than that. So it was more than my new house. Wow. Do you know, do you really, or I was going to say, do you really know, do you know what or where Motor City is? Because or it's still supposed to be there. You know, they have, yeah, it's still there. They have drones flying over it, but you can kind of see where it's at, kind of see where it's not. I mean, it was off of uh, Gratiot, wasn't it? it was off, no, it was off 26 Mile Road. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you went down uh, Gratiot to 26 Mile yeah. Road, turn right, you know, going east, yeah. and you went to M- Meldrum, M-E-L-D-R-U-M, Meldrum Road, and it was about a quarter of a mile back south on Meldrum, and it was on the right-hand side. So it was between Meldrum and, and Gratiot, uh, like I say, about a quarter mile uh, south of uh, of uh, 26 mile road. And I guess the, the strip is still there, although it's overgrown. Yeah. And I shouldn't have videos of it. You know, uh, uh, I last raced there myself in 1969 with my pro stock car. At that time, Gil Cohn was running the track and, uh, he invited me out for a match race. Who and, you match? Uh, oh, okay. <clears throat> I was going to say, who'd you match race? Pro stock match race. I don't remember uh, who all I was racing, but it was all the pro stock guys of the day. I'm sure Wally Booth was there. Uh, I'm oh, sure yeah. all the local guys were there. Wally was a good friend of mine, and uh, we we match raced several times. Uh, almost crashed. We almost crashed one night match racing down in uh, Ohio, right along the Ohio River. Um, there was a drag strip. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but <clears throat> okay. 
anyway, it was uh, Saturday night, and it got the last, it was a three out of five, and uh, I think I would win one, he would win one, and then I would win one. And anyway, we ended up racing the last round late at night was going to determine the match, and the dew had started to come in, you know. Ooh. Track got slick and uh, we we got through the race and I think I led the last race. We got through the quarter mile when I went hit the brakes where I didn't have a real big shutdown, so you had to get after the brakes pretty good. We both slid backwards off the track on opposite sides. We crossed, just missed each other, and went off <laughs> on opposite sides of the track backwards. Wow! I mean, have you ever got that close ever again after that time? Getting that close. uh, I have crashed several times real seriously. Uh, I've wadded up a couple Mustangs, you know, that they had the total of. Uh, But that was the closest I had come without actually crashing. Wow. You know, and we have another question, and you can keep coming. I mean, Dave Lyle, obviously the renowned Dave Lyle, knows all, is all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when did your group uh, say, you know what, maybe we should build our own drag strip? I mean, that was kind of a unique thing to say, wasn't it, knowing how much it would cost and stuff? Well, uh, that's how Michigan Hot Rod Association got started, because at our each of our clubs, were, there was a drag strip in uh, Tecumseh, Michigan, before our time. Okay. But we missed it. And uh, so at every hot rod, every one of our hot rod club meetings, which I think are on Thursday nights, if I remember correctly, we would talk about, boy, I wish we had a drag strip. And then somebody said, you know... If we all band together, we can turn the wish into reality. So all the hot rod clubs in the Detroit metropolitan area banded together and formed the Michigan Hot Rod Association. And that's how Autorama got born, because that was one of our fundraisers. Really? Uh, yeah, we had an auto show at the, uh, at the Eleanor at the Edsel and Eleanor Ford. Uh, the Tappet Tickers used to have auto shows at the Ford uh, Mansion along Jefferson there. Yeah. And then... Uh, one of our guys uh, who organized our show would get talking. Uh, I don't remember if it was Riddler or one of the guys about, uh, you know, taking this big time and renting Cobo Hall and doing a big show. But that's that's how the, the Cobo Autorama got started was the Michigan Hot Rod Association to raise money to build our drag strip. Wow. Wow, I mean, because it's almost phenomenal. How old were you guys during that time? Were you still in your teens, early 20s? Yeah, we're still in our teens. Yeah, I was 17, 18, 19. And you knock on the door at the county and say, we'd like to buy some land for a drag strip. Would that be okay? Well, we had some older guys, you know, in our group that would uh, represent us. Uh, Older professional people that knew how to speak and knew all the skills we hadn't learned yet. Yeah, and the county just said, sure, we'd love to have a drag strip in our backyard? Evidently. I don't remember how, how hard it was to sell the idea, but we did. We were able to sell it. You know, yeah, but, you did. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think by that time, they wanted to get us off the street because uh, they were, you know, uh, they didn't like us drag racing on the street. Right. And to be quite frank, I was, I was willing to get off the street, too, because I realized uh, how much danger we were in. We were, had several close calls street racing. I remember going off a uh, 16-mile road backwards in my buddy's 57 Pontiac. <laughs> Backward? Backward? Yeah, about, 100, about 110 miles an hour. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so, anyway, I, I understood the danger we were in and the risk we were taking. 
and by this time, you know, I, I, I had my family started. So I, I had to start thinking more responsibly and, uh, I was, I was all for, you know, getting off the street and going, going official besides being a, uh, ARCA guy, you know, I, I saw the income that you could learn because racing is really an entertainment business, yes. you know, and, and I recognize that very young. Uh, you would see the crowd that uh, would go to the Markham races or ARCA, which we, uh, Markham became ARCA uh, at uh, 17 years old. And uh, matter of fact, you asked if my dad was uh, willing to, to uh, be part of my racing. In 1956, I was at the uh, st- state fairgrounds uh, stock car race, which was put on by Mark, M-A-R-C. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, I was a pit guy at 17 years old, and uh, the pits were right alongside the straightaway, right in front of the main grandstand, and there was no retaining wall. So my mom was in the stands with my dad watching, and I would be changing the right rear tire, which was my butt hanging out practically <laughs> on the track, you know, and cars going by 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and your mom, and my didn't mom have noticed a... that, yeah. and she said, uh, you know, why don't you get somebody else to change that side? You change the other side. <laughs> you knew the mom was going to come in here sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, my mom always worried about my uh, my my butt getting ripped off. <laughs> but she didn't worry about you going out on grass yet? Or she didn't know? Well, she didn't know about that. She didn't know about that. <laughs> she thought you were going to the library? Well, my dad didn't even know those skills existed until I did a demonstration <laughs> for him when he was, was coming up to pick up the card cables and go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It always happens. Because I'm surprised that dad didn't see all the burnt rubber in the back of the, you know, on the fenders, or I should say the quarter panels at the time, you know. And it's another, you know, that, that Ford didn't have locker in, and uh, in no time at all, I had burned most of the right rear tire off. <laughs> So, <laughs> how did you I explain start, that? Well, I kept changing it, so, but he never noticed that it wasn't the same brand. You know, <laughs> new cars normally have the same brand of tire, but ours always had a different brand in the right rear. <laughs> and he never noticed that all three. Tires were like wearing down and tread, but yet you'd have this beautiful rear dry tire. <laughs> no, I never noticed. I mean, was, did one, you? One time, I did think something suspicious. I got my deals mixed up, and I had the uh, the off brand size in it as a spare. Yeah. And he was in the trunk all the time because that's where he kept his real estate signs. And I I forgot to get it out in time, so he noticed that the spare was Oop. different than the one he thought he that it should be in there. And uh, anyway, I, I I guess he let it pass, but he mentioned it to me. You know, that's got a different kind of spare. It's crazy, Dad. Don't know how that happened. That's my brother. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, was your brother this heavy into racing also? Well, my brother was uh, uh, had a different set of skills, and uh, he was interested in it. Right. And uh, but, but he, matter of fact, w- later on, I ended up with two race cars because once I started racing professionally, one isn't enough. You know, you're always got one. You're fixing <laughs> later in life. Yeah. I'm building one. I'm racing one, and I'm fixing one. <laughs> so I always had at least two of them. 
So uh, anyway, in 1969, uh, I went to the Superstock Nationals. I still had my 68 Cobra Jet and I my 69 Pro Stock. So my brother always, you know, wanted to be part of it. So yeah. I invited him to come along and drive the Superstock in the 68 car. And uh, I entered the 69 in Pro Stock and the 68 in Superstock, and he drove it. But he had his new wife with him, and uh, I don't think she was too enthused about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> about sitting in the hot sun all day and and uh, sleeping in a second-rate motel that we had to get and so forth. Yeah. So that was the last time he ever volunteered to go racing with me. You know, how did you do that, Dave? How did you, I mean, for somebody with a young family and you're starting out, I mean, how did you convince your wife to say, you know what, this is a lot of fun. You'll enjoy this. Well, my wife actually uh, actually took part in it. Uh, that was my first wife. Uh, your first wife. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, she, you know, she would come along and bring the kids and all the racers wives would, uh, would be there and, uh, and, uh, they would talk and exchange, uh, notes, uh, you know, and I guess she just accepted that that's, that's what husbands do. <laughs> really? And, uh, yeah. The only thing I had to do is when I started winning money, I had to give her the money. You know, if I handed her the money, the winning money, uh, She'd be okay with it. So that's what I always did. I always made sure that uh, she got to handle the money. And this was your first wife? Yes. And you gave her the money. <laughs> I gave her the money, yes. <laughs> You're a hell of a guy, well, man. <laughs> the, 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 actually, when we started winning money, you know, really making money, yeah. because I, I was only working as a technician at Ford Engineering right this time, and uh I think I was making $500 a month. Matter of fact, when I went to work at Ford Engineering, I had to take a pay cut. Bob Ford was uh, paying me $125 a week guarantee against my uh, labor hours yeah. if I was working on a race car. And then uh, so I was guaranteed to make at least 125 a week. I started at Ford Motor Company in 1963 at 500 a month. So I took a pay cut, you know, to go to work at Ford Engineering as a technician in the dyno lab. So my race winnings uh, actually helped us buy our our new house and buy the furniture, our new furniture for us. How did you smooth that over, Dave? I mean, how did you say, gee, honey, got a new job, taking a pay cut, see you morning? <laughs> I mean, how does that work? Well, I rationalized it that uh, I had more future at Ford ah. Engineering than I did than I did working as a dealer mechanic, and uh, she subscribed to that. And actually, it paid off because I went to back to night school, and I, I eventually worked my way up to be an engineer at Ford. You know, which is and, and in the the shoes of Brian Wolf. I mean, you said just a little bit ago, Dave, that you know you realize that drag racing, to a certain extent, is entertainment. I mean, with the lack right. of, you know, the the one thing that we see a lot is there's the stands are awfully bare. You know, I mean, if, oh, there, if yeah. If you were, That's yeah, today. today, today, back, back in the day, I remember at uh, dragway, I was frequently the winner of rounds and sometimes the overall eliminator coming down the return road and the Ford fans would line the fence on the spectator side. And if you ever saw the, how the return yeah. road was, sure. I would do hand slaps for the whole quarter mile. I would come down the return road with my window rolled down and my arm extended out the window, slapping the hands the whole quarter of a mile with all the Ford fans. You know, and they were thrilled. The grandstands, the grandstands would be full, eight, six or eight 
10 rows deep and all the whole length of the quarter mile uh, back in those days. Yeah, no matter what track you went to. But if all of a right. sudden you were like the, the grand pooba of drag racing in 2022 and you could wave your wand, I mean, have any kind of thoughts about how to get – what would you change in drag racing today? Uh, well, I think uh, back in those days, you know, we only had so many forms of entertainment. You had the, right. uh, the amusement parks, you had the beaches, and uh, once in a while you'd have a, a big band or a big famous singer come in and give a concert. But basically uh, racing was one of the entertainment venues. You know, right. we didn't, there wasn't that much on television and uh, there wasn't, there was no internet. So racing was a, was a, a, a great uh, entertainment venue, any form of racing. And uh, I was at uh, Flat Rock Speedway the night it opened in 1953, and it was a sellout crowd the very night they opened. Yeah. yeah. So uh, same at Motor City Speedway. If you didn't get there early enough, it was standing room only. Yeah, but what would, I mean, how do you do that? What do you change now? Because, you know, somehow drag racing is, you, they're not bringing folks in. Folks will go somewhere if they feel they're getting entertained or getting a value. And somehow yeah. we're not, we missed the link, you know, since almost like the 80s when you saw the, the uh, crowds drop off. I mean, what would you do for fans or to get fans back in? I mean, do you have any thoughts about what you would change in drag racing at all? Well, I think part of the thing that was so, uh, I, I know as far as Superstock goes, is that the fans would relate to the cars that they would see. You know, they want to see the car that they could get in the showroom out right. there racing. That was the big draw for the Southern Stock Car for NASCAR and the same for Superstock. Uh, all the Ford fans, you know, would root for me and all the Chevy fans would root for the Chevy guys and the Mopar guys. And I think a lot of that brand identity got lost when the foreign companies came in. And also, uh, there was only a, so many things for a young man to do back in my day. Uh, Ticket up cars was one of the ways to express your uh, interest or your uh, uh, talent for things mechanical or to catch your interest. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have computers and computer games. So uh, tinkering with cars was just a natural outlet for your energy and your uh, natural and intellectual inquisitiveness. Um, and I think that a lot of that was siphoned off by the Internet. And then uh, I think the foreign car companies diluted a lot of the uh, brand identity with uh, Ford, GM, Chrysler, American Motors. Originally, my dad drove Hudson, so I was a Hudson wow. fan before uh, 1955. And I, first thing Monday morning I would do was grab the news and see who won the NASCAR race to check on my hero, Marshall Teague or Herb Thomas, and make sure that the Hudson were still winning down south. Go Hudson Hornets. Yeah, one of the fastest yeah, cars. Yeah, that was what my dad had a, at a Hudson. Well, at and, least um, that, they were amazing cars. I learned, Go ahead. To drive on. I learned to drive on a 51 Hudson. <laughs> Why didn't you keep it? <laughs> Well, <laughs> half a century later, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's an amazing. He traded it in on a fifty-five Ford, <laughs> and the rest is history. You know, the rest I, is history. 
I mean, Dave, yes, do you go out as a spectator anywhere to any of the drag strips around here or around the nation? I, if a friend of mine is going to the track, I'll go with him. Uh, in the middle 70s, I didn't race much, but I, I went to the track with my brother-in-law, Carl Holbrook, and I would tune his car. Uh, one of the things I learned was how to read a plug and how to uh, how to dial in a chassis. So uh, Carl was an expert engine builder, yeah. and and, and uh, so I would do the plug reading and the jet changing and make the chassis adjustments while he concentrated on on his driving uh, in the 70s. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I know we're being waved at, and yes, yes. Uh, just for the affiliates for the CKWI Radio 76 affiliates down the line. Yes, we know we went way over today, but you know what? Damn it, it's well worth it. It's uh, We'll make it up on the other side at, at the Detroit Sports Authorities coming up at 7 o'clock. Dave, you know, normally we do this off air, but uh-huh. will you come back on with us? Man, we haven't even got... To, you, you're racing. We wanted to make sure that we, we set up where the people could get a, a feel of who you were. But, oh, my okay. God. You know, I mean, if this hour went that fast, by the time we even get to, to 65, 67, 68, and AHRA and all that stuff, oh, you, you, you might want to yeah. come back again and again. <laughs> you know, it's well, a, my, my friends and relatives keep saying I should write a book, and actually I have started a book, but... Uh, I just hope the Lord gives me enough time to finish it because I have a lot of stories to tell. I had a very interesting and very adventurous youth. I was uh, gifted, you know, with uh, inquisitive mind and yeah. uh, mechanical skills, and uh, that has uh, driven me all my life. Yeah, uh, matter of fact, still does. At eighty-two, I'm still doing it. Eighty-two. Yes. Are you supposed to sound like you're eighty-two? Aren't you supposed to sound old? Well, do, do I sound like I'm 82? No. <laughs> I don't, no. Say I don't look it either. Good Lord, son. I mean, yeah, you're right. You should almost have not only your own book, but your own movie. I mean, there is details in your background which are just insane, and we haven't even got to the nine-second dip yet, and we will. Oh, and yeah. We will. Uh, okay. On part I'm two. glad you come back. Oh, Dave, I'm telling you. All right, so now we know how to call you. Even though you do, by the we were talking about this in the pre-production meeting today. You have, and we're not going to give it out, but you have the best phone number of anybody we have ever seen. That was, you know, that was an accident. I got that by accident. Just accident. Accident. Okay. But I've never given it up. Once I got it, I would never give no. it up. No. carriers, I just haven't poured it over. No, you know, people would kill. I mean, businesses in drag racing would kill for that number. Uh-huh. Now everybody, yes, everybody around the world's going to try different combinations: four two six, four two nine, four two seven. No, it's not. Don't worry about it, folks. It ain't that. David, we're going to be uh, in touch with you probably within about the next ten minutes. But uh, you were okay. just a delight, honest to God. You know, and it's amazing yourself. And we've had other folks on too, but. It's you're everything that everybody said when they said, "Oh, you got to get Dave Lyle. You got to get Dave Lyle." Okay, <laughs> my God, we are glad we did. Stay, stay tuned. Um, stay healthy. We'll call you in about ten minutes or so, Dave, if you would. Okay, very good. All Thank right, you. thanks, Dave. Bye now.